Hey Undark listeners, in late August I actually participated in a citizen science project that studies how different parts of the city trap heat. I had to attach a long, skinny, white plastic tube that measures air temperature to the side of my car. And let me tell you, it started really early and I was not a happy camper. Okay, it is 6.01 a.m. And I am not a morning person. I am so tired, but I'm in my car and I'm coming out of my driveway. Right now, even though it's 6 a.m., it is pretty humid. It's a little cooler because obviously the sun isn't up. All right, I'm coming out of my driveway. Oh boy, I did not realize I sounded that tired. The temperature sensor actually records the temperature every single second. So as I drove around, it would sync with my GPS data to give me a second by second breakdown of the temperature outside. I was supposed to drive around for an hour at three different times, 6 a.m., 3 p.m., and 7 p.m., and I had to take the same route every single time. I'll take a right onto Franklin Street. It's not a good street at 3 p.m. when I have to go back because it's gonna be crazy. I did not finish my 3 p.m. route because as I expected, I hit rush hour. I did complete about 70% of my route, so I'm hoping that didn't completely invalidate the results. The point of the project is to study the urban heat island effect. Basically, that means more developed areas in cities like Washington, D.C. tend to be hotter than vegetated areas. That's because unshaded roads and concrete and buildings tend to absorb heat and then radiate that into the surrounding air, which increases the local air temperature. The researchers leading this experiment are from the Science Museum of Virginia in Richmond and Portland State University in Oregon. They want to create a detailed map of the temperature differences over different land use, meaning black asphalt versus concrete versus shaded neighborhoods versus parks versus parking lots. To get the high-resolution data, they asked me and a bunch of other volunteers to drive around in nine different cars through nine different neighborhoods in D.C. I guess I should probably go by Union Station. That has good land use, I think. Hey, I just saw a friend. I just saw another person on the road with the little temperature sensor. Cool. They actually did this project before in Richmond last summer in 2017. They found that on one of the hottest days of the summer, areas with a lot of infrastructure tended to be 16 degrees Fahrenheit warmer than shaded areas. Then they took this high resolution map and then compared it to a map of emergency calls received by the Richmond Ambulance Authority for heat related illnesses. They found that the two maps coincided. The hottest areas in the city also had the most heat-related emergencies. The sustainability office for the city of Richmond saw this data and decided to take some action. Next summer in 2019, they're going to go to the hottest places and add community cooling stations, which are just resources that help people cool off. So a big mist fan or cold water bottles or some kind of air-conditioned infrastructure.
And now they're doing this project in D.C. and Baltimore with funding from the Climate Program Office from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. All right, seven o'clock. I got to do this two more times and then we'll look at my data. Signing off. I finished my three traverses and I gave back the sensor on the very same night because the next morning they were going to Baltimore to do it all over again. And now it's been about a month since I did the campaign. So I wanted to see what the researchers found out. So here I decided to call up one of the leaders of the initiative. I'm happy to help out. How can I be how can I be useful for your for your story? This is Jeremy Hoffman, a climate and earth scientist from Science Museum of Virginia and Richmond. So what did you do with the data we collected? I think the campaign in D.C. was um, an absolute success. I think there was something like 70,000 data points went into all three of the time periods. This is very much built around a model. So um, the model that the Portland State guys use actually use the land cover underneath uh, the observations that we that we ourselves took to predict what the temperatures would be in between those points based on the land use. Interesting. So we gave you data points over the different types of land use, and then you use satellite data in your model to fill in the gaps of temperature readings across the city. Cool. What did you find overall in our DC results? The coolest areas are the most heavily shaded, wooded areas that you can get to. For example, in in Baltimore, um, like Leakin Park, or um, uh, there's one particular road that I was on in West Baltimore that uh, we saw m m almost 10 to 12 degrees Fahrenheit reduction from just like a couple blocks away. So it's it's really that that extreme difference between those big, expansive built environments and then into the most dense kind of wooded environments that we see the largest temperature differences. Oh, wow. Um, so I didn't quite finish my 3 p.m. route. Was I the only one in the D.C. Uh, cohort that didn't finish their 3 p.m. route? One thing that I was really concerned about was the amount of traffic that we'd have to deal with, that we wouldn't get as much data as we usually do from other cities, but it turned out to be not a problem at all. So even though some people didn't make their uh, full traverse in the afternoon, we still wound up with enough information to really uh, uh, pretty precisely predict the uh, temperatures in the model surfaces. Cool. So um, what do you hope that the average person walking down the street understands by learning about urban heat islands? That's a very good question. What do I hope the average person learns? I think it's the fact that every decision that we make as far as um, increasing the area of uh, our, our cities and changing those natural landscapes, any decision made without this information potentially has the uh, ability to exacerbate the issue. Uh, every building that we put in is an opportunity, and no matter what, we need to be making progress on, on adapting to and becoming more resilient to climate change. When you say that every building we build is an opportunity, you mean an opportunity for... Yeah, no, every single, every single new development and building is an opportunity to reduce 
the potential for health impacts, um, the, to, to reduce uh, urban air quality issues, to reduce um, energy usage. Um, they can have green roofs, you know, that, that absorb more rainwater and reduce the surface temperature of that roof, which reduces the internal uh, cooling load. They could have green walls that absorb more of the ozone that's generated from the uh, emissions that are coming out of our cars and infrastructure. Um, they could have, uh, you know, these heat-resistant building materials that don't absorb as much of that heat. So it's really amazing. Like, we know so much about this phenomenon now that every single building that doesn't take it into account makes the problem worse and was a missed opportunity. Maybe that's, maybe that's the better way to describe it, is that every single new redevelopment of an area has the ability, the, it, it has the ability to fix this problem. And so everyone that gets built without this information being incorporated into its design is a missed opportunity to keep our people healthier and safer and more resilient to climate change. Ah, okay, that makes, <laughs> that makes sense. Thank you so much. And this was really a fun project. I'm really glad that I got the opportunity to do this. Well, I'm really glad that you did too. That was Jeremy Hoffman. They're currently processing all of the data and will be releasing the data in a paper at some point in the future. But you got a sneak peek of the project and initial results right here. Okay, I'm ready to move out of the city and get away from this urban heat island effect. Let's travel to a nice shaded place where it is much cooler. We're joined by Kota Korat, who will take us to an experimental forest in Estonia where scientists are hooking up sensors to the trees to study how extra humidity from climate change will change how the forest grows. There are about 20, 25 Sensors. We might find some of them, although the grown vegetation is a bit too big already. There are several, several things. That's Ingvar Tulva, a plant physiologist at the University of Tartu. He's shifting through the understory to show me a bizarre web of cables and sensors entwining the trees. We are in a small forest tucked between the hills of southern Estonia, and even though it's a hot and sunny day, a fog lingers in the branches above us. Well, humidity plot where we increase the yeah, humidity actually and hence there are ventilators working. Uh, you can see the fog being generated here from oh. these nozzles. Simply uh, several atmospheres of pressure squeezes water through a very small hole. This is what creates the noise. Uh, the fog. This hardwire forest of silver birches and hybrid aspens we are standing in is a one-of-a-kind climate change experiment called Free Air Humidity Manipulation, or FAM for short. Here, with the help of a fog-making robot, researchers are trying to predict what the forest of the future might look like. As our world warms, huge swaths of North America, Europe and Asia are expected to become more humid and no one yet fully understands what that will do to temperate forests. One of our initial hypotheses when we built this uh, site was that if we increase air humidity, then uh, we decrease water demand, and probably this should be somehow beneficial for the, uh, for the trees. To test that theory, 
Tova and his colleagues plant plots of trees and manipulate how wet the air is while they grow. The web of sensors monitor things like natural humidity and wind speed to automatically adjust how much mist is blown through a given plot and keep humidity at a constant elevated level. Then the researchers can measure not just how large the trees grow, but how they grow, the ways they use water or nitrogen, where they store nutrients and how soft humidity changes and more. We attempt to do the measurements in as close conditions to natural as possible mm -hmm. but uh, also as we have found out uh, it is it is not very easy to achieve we always end up affecting several uh, other things that we ideally should not for example it took them two years to tune the mist so it raised air humidity without soaking the leaves in liquid water Climate change hands scientists a mass of variables. Temperature changes, extreme weather changes, humidity, methane, carbon dioxide increases. Experiments like FAM try to tease those threads apart and look at just one factor to see how a forest might change. But it's quite a project. Climate change experiments in particular have to measure and quantify the background climate as well as your experimental climate and do it very well and working in remote places and doing experiments in remote places poses a whole another set of challenges. That's David Ellsworth, a professor of plant ecophysiology at Western Sydney University. I called him to learn about a similar experiment to FAM that he's leading. But he is flooding his native Australian outback forest with carbon dioxide instead of humidity, bumping the concentration of CO2 up to 550 parts per million, the levels we are expected to hit by 2050. Since trees breathe in carbon dioxide, if they mop up the extra CO2 and store it in their wood, forests could offset emissions. We have seen a strong increase in photosynthesis in the trees, in elevated CO2, but we have not seen an increase in the growth and productivity of the trees. Asworth found that when he gave trees extra carbon dioxide, the trees converted carbon dioxide into energy faster, but they weren't growing an extra amount. Either the carbon is circulating through the system faster, and so it's being taken up faster, but also going back out of the system through respiration faster or it's being stored somewhere that we, we haven't found yet. So the plants might be locking up carbon, or they might just be breathing it out at it. Asworth and his team now trying to figure out where that carbon might be stored if it's not being used to make the tree taller. Already, he has discovered the forest in the Australian outback acted differently than forests under similar climate conditions elsewhere in the world. Here we're in very poor soils that are often limiting in the nutrient phosphorus and we think that that might constrain the growth of the trees and, and limit their, their ability to respond to high CO2. That's why researchers need to run these forest experiments around the world to pinpoint not just what changes but why it changes in a given location. Then they can tailor their forecast and, for example, predict how much of our emissions a specific forest will be able to store. Oh. Back in Estonia, 
Tova shows me the heart of the experiment, a small lab in a trailer where all cables meet. After more than 10 years of studying the forest, he says there are some impacts of the future climate they can predict. We quickly found out that actually trees don't like increased humidity in, in this uh, latitude. Uh, actually, for several probably quite complicated reasons, they tend to grow worse, uh, worse in, in uh, elevated humidity. Tova and his colleagues also believe they managed to find the root of the problem, almost literally. The water that is in the, in the leaf, it has come from the, from the ground, through the roots, through the trunk. And this upwards moving movement of water actually carries also nutrients from the soil. Ah. And increased air humidity slows down this movement. Apparently this creates something of a trouble for the tree that it cannot uh, get these nu nutrients from the soil anymore. And uh, this is what we suspect is the main cause of uh, actually growth retardation, as we say. What keeps puzzling Tova is that eventually the growing rate returns to normal. Eventually, see, they seem to kind of cope with the, with the new condition and begin to keep the same pace as in, uh, as in the control areas. But he can't yet answer the question of how much damage this early slow growth does to an adult tree. By the time they could study this, the trees are too big to successfully surround with humidity and have to be cut down. Ellsworth needs cranes and 60-foot scaffolding to monitor his native forest. The other thing about forests is that um, they can be quite slow growing and we want to observe responses that are significant over a number of years. So it does take some patience in your experiments as well. Well, he also says that the rate of carbon emissions put a time pressure on experiments like this. He says they need to produce results in five to ten years, much faster than a lifetime of a tree, so they can pinpoint the problem not with utmost accuracy, but well before it's too late. Experiments like this in Estonia and the one down under are still trying to understand the effects of individual aspects of climate change. Looking at the impact together will be an entirely different challenge. They are all racing with time, trying to understand how entire forests will live and die, but within the scale of our human lives. Well, we can predict the future of them as best as we can, but we won't know exactly what will happen until it's upon us. For our feature this month, we're looking at a case study written for Undark Magazine on medical record fragmentation. The author writes, Every year, an untold number of patients undergo duplicate procedures or fail to get them at all because key pieces of their medical history are missing. Why? To help us figure that out, Seth Mnookin is filling in for David Corcoran. Seth Mnookin is a journalist, author, and director of MIT's graduate program in science writing. Seth, thank you for joining us. Hey, Kasha. Thanks for having me. So it is my pleasure to welcome to the show Ilana Yurkowitz, 
who is a physician at Stanford University and also a medical journalist. Um, She is a former Scientific American blog network columnist, uh, and her writing has appeared in uh, all sorts of outlets, including Aeon, uh, Stat, and, of course, uh, Undark recently. Um, Alana, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Seth. It's great to be here. So, Alana, can you tell me what you wrote about for Undark? Uh, And you had a a patient, Michael. Describe what happened to him. So I wrote a piece about the story of fragmented medical records that centers around a real patient I cared for uh, named Michael Champion and his wife, Leah. And Michael was discharged from the hospital to a nursing facility came back in, discharged a second time, and then came back into the intensive care unit, all because of pieces of his medical record that fell through the cracks. Um, I want to read one one passage that I just thought was so so eloquent. You wrote, when a patient with a complex medical history like Michael arrives under my care, it's like opening a book to page 200 and being asked to write page 201. That can be challenging enough, but on top of that, maybe the middle is mysteriously ripped out. Pages 75 to 95 are shuffled, and several chapters don't even seem to be part of the same story. Meanwhile, everyone around me is urging, write now, and write W-R-I-T-E, now. Um, so w- w- what what do you mean exactly by being asked to write page Yeah, exactly. I mean, when someone comes into the hospital, like Michael, It's not like I have the luxury of saying, okay, let me take a week and read through all your records and think about it and read through pages one to 200 of your personal story. They're coming in because they have a problem right then and they want that problem to be solved. And sometimes, you know, it's not coming, the patient's not asking for their problem to be solved, but the medical reality is, is requiring that I act now. And right. so, you know, in the medical, we have to make decisions relatively quickly without the luxury of reading the entire story. I've wanted to write a version of this article probably since my third year of medical school when I first got exposed to the story of fragmented medical records. Um, and over the last few years as a, as a practicing physician, I felt like I had a front row seat to the story of fragmented records, and it and it played so much into my day to day life. Um, so so much of my job actually entailed uh, not just making medical decisions, but trying to put pieces together uh, from when patients went from one hospital to another to get the story straight. And that didn't feel right to me. Was there was there something specific that occurred in medical school that made you? either want to write about this or, or sort of realize that this was going to be an ongoing issue, not only for the medical profession, but for you in your, in your career? Yeah, so I noticed something. It was a, a story from my third year of medical school when I was in Boston, and we had a patient transfer to our service, and this patient had just been at a hospital directly up the block and she had a CT scan of her chest that was done that morning. And then she transferred to our hospital and we were not able to see the results of that CT scan that she had a few hours ago. And we were debating what to do because we were trying to make a decision about how to treat what we presumed was an infection in her lungs. And then after a few minutes of back and forth, the attending physician basically just 
put his foot down and said, well, get her back in the CT scan and scan her again. And I remember looking out the window of the hospital and being able to see the other hospital, you know, directly up the block and thinking I could run, I could run there and back faster than it would take to get the CDs mailed over, which is what we would wait for otherwise if we didn't repeat the scan. And meanwhile, she was getting another scan, you know, getting the same amount of radiation to her body that she just had a few hours ago. And I thought that didn't feel right. Why was it that you couldn't get the result? I mean, you know, why couldn't literally you have gone across the street or just called up the other hospital and said, we have this patient here, we understand that he or she just had a CAT scan, we need to see the results. So the the viewing system that we had at our hospital was a separate vendor from the viewing system at the hospital across the street. So literally just different software. Different software. So I would I would have had to go across the street and I could have done this and the, those images were stored on a CD and I would have had to pick up the CD, come back to my hospital, walk it over to the radiology department, have them uploaded into our system, have our radiologists read it which is a very roundabout way <laughs> to see a scan that was just done. Right, right. Huh, okay. Then g- tell us a, a little bit specifically about Michael's case, about how he presented when he first came in, when you first saw him. Um, and then it sounds like you had some trepidation even on that initial discharge. So tell us a little bit about that. The, the most dangerous part of a hospital stay is actually the discharge part because that's when they're going to a new facility and things can and do fall through the cracks. And it happens all the time. So uh, Michael's story was that, you know, he was admitted for an infection the first time around. And he was an older patient, is that right? Yeah, he was an elderly patient who was mostly cared for by his wife, Leah. So he, he came in for an infection and then because of the infection, his blood sugar was running high higher than normal. So we ended up having to adjust his insulin regimen too. And then I clearly marked in my discharge summary how to do the new insulin regimen. But by the time he made it over to the nursing facility, somehow that plan had fallen through the cracks. You describe um, a, a, a really heartbreaking moment where you were told you had a new patient and you pulled back the curtain and, and you saw that it was Michael and he was, he was back there again. Yeah, so the first time around, the first time he was discharged, he came back less than two days later. Yeah. So things really went wrong, as Leah put it, the moment he arrived. Uh, And he came back because his blood sugar was running high. um, And she was also concerned that he was starting to develop a fever again. The reason his blood sugar was high was because he was not getting the extra insulin that we had tried to make so clear in his discharge summary that he would need because he had an infection. Can, can you describe the, the events after he left your care for the second time? Uh, there was some stuff that was, that was done correctly, but one thing that fell through the cracks was the water that he needed along with his tube feeds. Right. So tube feeds only provide nutritional formula. They don't actually give you plain water. And I, I actually remember putting asterisks around that part in my discharge summary but that was the part that fell through the cracks. And again, I never found out exactly what happened because there was no record uh, of his stay that I could have access to at that nursing facility. But he didn't get the the right amount of free water that we were giving him in the hospital. 
And when that happens, the sodium in your bloodstream can rise to extremely dangerous levels and make people comatose, which is pretty much what happened. He came back to the intensive care unit with a sodium of 164. And just for reference, the upper limit of normal is 145. So he was nearly 20 points higher than that. I, I kind of mentioned in the end of the piece, I retraced their steps You know, two years later, uh, trying to figure out exactly where the breakdown was. And I never did. And I think that's very notable because there was no record that I could find at the nursing facility two years later of what happened. Um, I found that those records were stored in a paper binder that was in a storage unit somewhere that I didn't have access to. And I think that's the crux of the story right there is that we do all of this work and then the records go missing. They, they vanish. Right, right. I mean, there were a lot of astounding things in your piece. You know, it was incredibly moving piece and also a very frustrating piece, as I'm sure the experience was for you. But one of the things that really struck me is you talked about how you typed up this discharge summary and how you knew even at that point that you had to bolster the the discharge summary. So you use simple and straightforward language. You bolded exactly what needed to be done. You know, you double check the medication list. But it sounds like for all of that you did, you could have essentially just sent him out with a post-it note on his forehead that said sick. And there would have been essentially the same amount of communication between between your facility and, and the nursing home. Yeah. And I think it's incredibly frustrating. And it's it's dangerous to patients and it's frustrating to providers because, I mean, I think it's a story of bad outcomes without bad characters and everyone was doing the best they could to try to put the pieces together and pass them forward. But I knew that all the nursing facility would receive was that sheet of paper that I wrote, which is why I tried to bolster it as much as possible. You know, I knew they wouldn't have any prior records, like prior lab values how his insulin had been managed before this hospitalization. You obviously take and, and, and took great care in, in saying that someone is not at fault here, but it also sounds like there certainly were not any extra efforts made at that nursing facility to find out what might be needed. I think I think that's true, but I also think, you know, they shouldn't have to go above and beyond they shouldn't have to call the hospital every time a patient transfer happens. This is all supposed to be taken care of by the system. I mean, it's asking for such a huge burden to be placed on healthcare professionals who are busy doing other things like taking care of patients to also be doing the work of data collection. Right, sure. You know, yeah. the hardest part of medicine should not be the data collection. And so, you know, I, I don't blame them. I don't blame them because I've been in that position myself. I've been in the position where I've had a patient come to me and I don't have all the records and I'll do my best. And, you know, sometimes I can call other places and sometimes I'm able to reach somebody and sometimes I'm not. Right. And right. the system should be doing all of this for us. You know, that shouldn't fall on the shoulders of busy healthcare professionals. And, you know, and the reality is the more that it falls on their shoulders and the more cumbersome the process is, the less likely people are to do it properly. You write very, uh, very convincingly about why we need a consistent and cohesive system for health records. So in 2004, uh, President George W. Bush created 
this thing called ONC, O-N-C, within the Department of Health and Human Services. What, what is ONC? What does that stand for? So ONC stands for the Office of the National Coordinator for Health Information Technology. Got it. Okay. And then I think if five years later, is that right? In 2009, that was when Congress authorized and, and funded legislation known as the HITECH Act, the Health Information Technology for Economic and Clinical Health Act, a, a strained acronym if there ever was one. Uh, <laughs> but, but what was that? What was the HITECH Act and, and what was that meant to achieve? The goal of the HITECH Act was to convert paper records at hospitals into electronic charts. And they were allotted a lot of money to do this. And to their credit, most hospitals did this very successfully. So before 2009, we did use paper records a lot more. After that, we do use electronic records. But the problem is that there are hundreds of different vendors who own these electronic uh, health record systems. And those vendors were not communicating with each other. So even though different hospitals uh, had all of their information in an electronic form, it couldn't be shared from one hospital to another. And I interviewed Karen DeSalvo in this piece, um, who is the director of ONC from 2014 to 2016. So she was the person within uh, the Department of Health and Human Services who was sort of in charge of overseeing this, overseeing the, the, the digitization of care, essentially. Yeah, so she was tasked with taking all of these different vendors that weren't speaking to each other and trying to get them to talk to each other, which is a huge deal. And it's a bureaucratic and engineering nightmare. And I think people have been working on this. And uh, we just haven't made the progress that we've been promised, you know, since 2009 when all of this began. And, and is that essentially just a, a software problem? Or is that because, because they want to bring as many people as possible? Obviously, every company wants to bring as many people as possible under their umbrella. It's a little bit of both. So there are companies that do charge fees in order to share data with other companies. But at the same time, it's also just an engineering question. Uh, it's trying to make different systems standardized. And when I interviewed uh, actually Mark Savage for this piece, he was- Mar Mark was is the director of health policy at, at UC San Francisco Center for Digital Health Innovation, right? Yeah, that's right. And he was, he was talking about the standardization process. And he made the analogy uh, that, that didn't make it into the, the final version where he said, imagine going to a car rental place and you're looking for the gas pedal. Well, maybe it's in the back seat. And I thought that was a perfect analogy to describe our healthcare system and the importance of standardization. Like driving a car, making healthcare decisions, it's too important to start fiddling with the system. You know, we should have something that's standardized and easy to use so that we can focus on the more important questions. Yeah, it, it. I mean, I couldn't help thinking in reading your piece that, you know, if, if there was a, a moment of original sin here, it was not including a requirement for standardization in that 2009 uh, in the High Tech Act. Um, and requiring that at the outset could have sort of saved us from a lot of headaches and, and aggravations down the line. Yeah, and I think, you know, some competition is okay. It's okay to have different vendors. Uh, I don't think that's necessarily the problem. We don't just need a monopoly from one vendor, but they do need to use a standardized uh, format of data entry and collection 
so that doctors aren't struggling with it. Right, right. Another point that I found really interesting in, in your piece, and I guess when I thought about it, it wasn't as surprising as it seemed at first blush, but that's that um, s- sort of the, 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 the least problematic aspect of this is patients wanting to safeguard their privacy. That in fact, 95% of patients have no problem sharing all of their medical information across uh, all of their different caregivers. Um, I think you write that patients are probably the biggest advocates for sharing medical information. Uh, th- that's something that uh, that initially I did find surprising. Is that something that when you learned that, that you were surprised by, or did that seem to resonate with your experiences as a doctor? It's, it resonated with my experiences. So I think Mark Savage's data confirmed or was in parallel with my personal experiences. And I, I say something in the piece, like I've actually, you know, thinking about it now, I've I've never had a patient, you know, be upset with me because I knew too much of their medical history or ask, how did you know that? But they've been upset with me because I didn't know aspects of their medical history. And most patients assume that their doctors are talking to each other and that their doctors are sharing information. And I think Mark Savage's data just backs that up so much that this this privacy concern is a bit overblown. Well, this is, you can probably tell, this is a topic that I could talk about forever. I find this fascinating. I, there are just a couple of more points I wanted to touch on. Um, uh, one that I found really striking was the number of people that die um, in hospitals every year due to preventable medical errors. Um, And you talked about how uh, the Institute of Medicine, now the National Academy of Medicine, um, published a report uh, almost 20 years ago about how between 44,000 and 98,000 people die each year in hospitals um, from preventable errors. Uh, but actually, the, the, the actual number today could be almost 400,000 deaths per year, um, which is incredible. You know, it, that, that made me then go look up the number of deaths caused by other things. It, just for a point of reference, uh, um, guns cause 33,000 deaths a year in the U.S., so less than a tenth of, of what are attributed to preventable uh, medical errors. Cancer causes, um, uh, well, heart attacks, I think, cause around 600,000 deaths per year. Does that sound, am I, am I getting that roughly right? Yeah. So a little bit more. But it, it made me think that it, what might be needed here is um, a real a real sort of patient-led movement. Uh, and you think about that number of fatalities, I guess I was surprised that there isn't more outcry about that. Um, and if there were the same sort of marches on Washington uh, and National Action Days, that that might be a way to force along some of the change that it seems like if we let it occur naturally is has been pretty slow to evolve. Well, I think one of the key questions uh, involved in, in in what you're talking about is, but what is what is the root cause of all these errors? So, you know, it's easy to be upset about it, and, and people should be upset about it and to get up in arms about the fact that there are so many uh, preventable medical errors that are occurring in hospitals across the U.S., but, I mean, the key question is why? And I was hoping to uh, highlight one aspect of why with this article, uh, which is the medical records 
And I think that's one aspect that doesn't make it as much, you know, into the public discourse that a lot of patients who are leading the movements don't don't know as much about um, and has been underreported on. Right. And and so a, a last question then, um, as a patient, uh, what what steps could patients take to try and ensure that um, the the lack of different different hospitals, different care providers being able to transfer records to each other to, to make sure that that doesn't impede their own care um, or cause serious complications in their own care? Or are there steps that patients can take? Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. And I think it's remembering that as a patient, you are the only clear source of continuity in your own care. So even though you trust the system around you to store your records properly and to have all the data, trying to get that data for yourself and keep it organized and bring it to every new physician or every new you know, healthcare system that you come across uh, really helps your providers out. Right. And will help you out, too. Um, and also, it, it, one thing I've noticed in my own case is uh, it's important for me to take contemporaneous notes because if six months later I'm trying to tell a doctor what happened at a previous appointment, even if I think I remember it perfectly, I oftentimes find out that as is the case in, in no matter what situation you're trying to recount, that memory is very fallible um, uh, and things that you're certain about didn't always occur the way you you think they did. Right. So uh, uh, let, let's end up then by by finishing out Michael's story. This obviously was an incredibly difficult and painful period. Um, but it sounds like ultimately you were really able to help out Michael and and Leah, and their story ended on um, uh, with them getting some 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 peace. Yeah, I think it was it was very fortunate in the end that after everything Michael had been through, uh, everything that was preventable, I, I would add, he ended up going home on hospice and it was on his own terms. Um, and then he actually, he, he passed away when I was in the process of, of writing this piece and it was uh, in July of 2018. And that was also on his own terms. And all of this stuff that happened to him was not on his own terms. You know, it was, it was things that happened to him. And in the end, uh, I think it was a very peaceful and comfortable um, ending for the entire Champion family. And, and just to make clear that none of that was related to anything that occurred during the sort of medical odyssey that, that you were involved in. No. He was ultimately able to no. recover from all of that. And this was just the natural progression of, of his life. That, that's right. It wasn't related. I mean, this was a year and a half later, um, and he just hap- happened to get sick with something else. And, you know, it, just to make the point that it was pretty remarkable, actually, how long he, he ended up living on hospice. Because in order to qualify for hospice, the doctor had to say, you have under six months to live. And he ended up living a year and a half so he had a lot of strength, clearly a lot of a lot of strength and a lot of fortitude. Yeah. Well, Alana, thank you so much. Um, it really is an incredible story, and it's so rare that patients and readers get this kind of look at what doctors are going through and this kind of um, intimacy 
with doctors' emotions and doctors' experiences. And I, I think it's it's a, a real gift to readers uh, for us to be able to read about this and and understand what people on the other side of of the uh, of the doctor's office are going through. So thank you very much, um, and thank you for coming on the Undark podcast and talking to us. Thank you so much, and thank you for the very insightful questions, Seth. So that was Alana Yerkowitz, uh, who is a doctor at Stanford University and a longtime medical journalist, uh, and she wrote this for Undark. Thanks for listening, everyone. We are produced by Lydia Chain. Music is by the Undark team, and I'm your host, Kasha Patel. I'll be at NASW next month. Come say hi.